while we're waiting, if you want to, we'll be in Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10 this morning. And our health, whoo, that is loud. I'm not as soft-spoken as Brother Bob. That would be really loud if we kept that on. In our health-conscious age, we're always concerned about our health and our fitness. One part of our body that we are mostly concerned about is our heart. We're encouraged to be heart conscious. Many foods that we now eat, that we eat now have labels that say heart smart. We seek to be aware of whether or not our heart problems run in our families. We have heart checkups done regularly. And we want to know about any potential heart problems as soon as possible so that we can have it taken care of. We do this because we know that one of the keys to being physically healthy is to have a healthy heart. Now, a healthy heart is almost a miraculous thing if you think about it. From what I read this week, the heart beats on average of 100,000 times a day. That makes it sort of amazing that hearts don't give out more often than they do. I mean, think about it. Have you ever heard of a car that ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 70 plus years without ever needing a tune-up? God has made the human body amazing. And yet there are times when the human heart does go bad. It can go bad due to a lack of exercise. It can go bad due to a bad diet. It can go bad due to genetics. In some cases, the heart can be so damaged that it needs to be replaced altogether. When the heart just isn't working like it should and it can't be fixed through diet, exercise, or medicine, and the person is in danger of dying, a heart transplant may be required. With a heart transplant, an unhealthy heart is removed and replaced with a new healthy heart. I was going to show a video of a heart transplant this morning, but Kelly told me I was not allowed to. She said that would be gross. Thanks, Kelly. Everybody say thank you, Kelly. A South African surgeon named Dr. Christian Bernard performed the first successful heart transplant in 1967. At the time, it was seen as a miracle of modern science. Nowadays, however, it's pretty common. Not that it's still not amazing, but there are about 5,000 heart transplants performed around the world every year, with about 2,000 of them being performed in America. So how is your heart this morning? Is it beating strong with regular intervals? Does it deliver an adequate supply of oxygen throughout your body? Well, no matter how healthy our physical hearts are, Scripture tells us that we all need heart transplants. Receiving this heart transplant is so important that it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Open your Bible to Jeremiah 17, verse 9, page 587 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The title of the message this morning is Heart Transplant. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We are thankful for the great privilege we have of gathering today in your house, gathering in your name and studying your word. And Lord, as we gather in this place in your name to look at your word, we ask for your spirit to come. And for Him to begin to move in our hearts and move in our lives even now. To prepare us for the Word that You have sent for us today. Heavenly Father, You know who here today is having spiritual heart problems. 
You know, Father, whose heart needs to be replaced, whose heart needs to be renewed, whose heart needs to be strengthened and whose heart needs to be encouraged. And God, you are the God who can do all of these things. So today we come and we come with submission and we ask you to search us and to try us, to test our hearts and to see what's going on inside. And Lord, make it clear to us today if we need a heart transplant. Make it clear today if our hearts are not right with you. And God, if our hearts are not right with you, burden us about this. Father, the temptation, because our hearts are deceitful and wicked, is going to be to push it away and to think that we'll be the exception. But help us today not to deceive ourselves. Help us today, God, to take your word seriously and let it speak deeply into our lives. Father, bring great conviction into us today. Let your Holy Spirit take your word and use it like a sword. Bring us to the place it was on the day of Pentecost when they cried out, What must I do to be saved? Cut through our justifications. Cut through our rationalizations. Cut through our excuses. Lay us bare before you and your word this morning. Change us, O oh God, that we could be who you want us to be. Do what only you can do in our hearts and in our lives today. Fill me with your spirit and let me be a vessel of honor that you would use to bring glory and honor to your name. We ask all of this in the mighty and victorious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. But you may be seated. Now, in our culture... The heart, it seems, is the sure guide for life. We feel certain that as long as we follow our hearts, we'll never go wrong. We tell people to follow their hearts, and as long as they do, their wildest dreams will come true. If we believe something very deeply, we, we say that we believe it in our heart of hearts. And despite our confidence in our hearts to lead us, to guide us, to help us, Scripture has an entirely different perspective. Scripture says he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Now that verse is obviously not going to be the basis of a country song anytime soon. But it is important for us to see the contrast that's being made. The author of Proverbs tells us that we can either walk according to our hearts or we can walk wisely but we can't do both. If I follow my heart, Scripture says I am a fool. Now, God, through Jeremiah, tells us why this is the case. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, the picture of the human heart that God paints in this passage is actually pretty rough. God says that the heart is naturally deceitful above all things. And it is a natural thing. It's not something that we have to, to rise up to this or train ourselves to be this way. On our own, without Jesus, this is the natural state of the human heart. Just deceitful above all things. And the deceit of the human heart is seen. In the blindness or the justification that we often make for our sin. 
We only have to turn on our TV to see this happening. Nearly every day, some new famous person is being accused of some sort of sexual sin and in some cases, crime. Now, very few of those accused actually just come out and say, yep, I did it. I I was wrong, but I did it. Instead, we have heard person after person explain that they don't remember that happening. But if they did it, certainly it was wrong. Others have minimized what they've done by by saying it was just a joke and they're sorry everyone didn't get the joke. Others have tried to minimize the damage by seemingly admitting that they have a problem and going to get help, but stopping short after a few days because, well, they're all better now. They've made huge progress in a day or two. But let's be honest. We don't have to turn on the TV and go to Hollywood or Washington, D.C. to see the deceitful heart in action, do we? We see it every day in the world around us. We see it in the cheating spouse that can give you a list of reasons as to why what they're doing isn't really wrong. We see it in the couple living together outside of wedlock because morals have changed. We see it in the person who steals from their employer because, as they say, they just aren't paid enough. We see it in the person who gets drunk on the weekend because they just need to have a little fun. We see it in the parent who lets their teenagers live in sin because kids are going to be kids. We see the deceitful heart in a myriad of ways every single day of our lives. We see it on the TV. We see it in our community. And if we're just real honest, we may see it when we look in the mirror. Jeremiah also says that the heart is desperately wicked. Now, I discovered something interesting about the idea of being desperately wicked and that it also could be translated as without cure. And the idea is that the desperately wicked nature of the heart cannot be fixed by any human means. You cannot fix the desperately wicked heart by turning over a new leaf. You cannot fix the desperately wicked heart by voting Democrat or Republican. You cannot fix the desperately wicked heart by joining a church. You cannot fix the desperately wicked heart by finding the right significant other. You cannot fix the desperately wicked heart by doing good deeds. The heart is so desperately wicked and beyond cure that even essential oils cannot fix it. The prognosis of the spiritual condition of the heart is death every single time. Not physical death, but spiritual death. So how's your heart this morning? Is it deceitful and wicked? Now, who wants to answer that question openly and honestly? Most of us would ask, we would say no. That's not me. To which I would reply, I I knew you'd say that. How did I know? Because God asked the question in verse 9, who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. The implication is that we cannot search our hearts on our own. We are not able to accurately identify the condition of our hearts. The reason goes back to the fact that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. The heart is so deceitful that it is able to convince us that it's not desperately wicked when in fact it is. 
Our hearts are so deceitful and so desperately wicked that we can look at something someone does and we can say that is absolutely an, an, an instance of a deceitful and a wicked heart. We can then turn around and do the exact same things and with a straight face say, oh, that's different. What I'm doing is different. So we're not able to test it on our own. Thankfully, Jesus has given us some clear symptoms of a heart that is desperately wicked. Jesus said what comes out of a man, that's what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things, they come from within and they defile a man. All of the things that Jesus mentioned here, they come out of a heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked. I just want to take a couple of minutes and go through these things because they do give us warning signs of someone who needs a heart transplant. First, Jesus says evil thoughts. Now, the Greek word for evil is also translated as grievous, harmful, malicious, and lewd. The evil, harmful, malicious, and lewd thoughts we think, even if we don't ever act upon them, they flow out of a deceitful and desperately wicked heart. Adultery. Adultery is simply being sexually unfaithful to your spouse. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, that having lustful thoughts about someone other than your spouse is also a form of adultery. So while you may have never physically cheated on your spouse, you may have cheated on them with your mind. Ways that this could be done would be through pornography, romance novels, which cause us to have lustful thoughts about people that are not our spouse. Fornication is any sexual action outside the bonds of marriage. The word used for fornication there, it refers... Well, it's the word where pornography comes from. And it's used to show that not only is direct participation in sexual sin forbidden, but indirect participation as an audience is also forbidden. So again, we would find pornography and romance novels in there as well. Murders. Murder is wrongfully taking the life of another. But Jesus again raises the bar in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says that being angry with someone without cause... That despising someone or calling them a fool is the spirit behind that command. So murder would be to take another human life and that would reveal a deceitful, wicked heart. But it would also mean to be angry with someone, at someone without a, a valid and a righteous reason. To despise someone in speech, thought or action. All of those things also reveal a deceitful and a desperately wicked heart. Theft is to cheat and steal or to wrongfully take from another person. 
Covetousness. The word that's used there, it basically means a consuming desire to have more. It could be the consuming desire for more money. It could be the consuming desire for fame. It could be the consuming desire for possessions. It could be the consuming desire for power. It could be the consuming desire for sex. It could be the consuming desire for promotion. It could be the consuming desire for a car. It could pretty much be used as a consuming desire to have about anything. Now, Colossians 3 and 5 warns us that covetousness is idolatry. And covetousness is idolatry because it makes what we desire, whatever that may be, the object of our devotion instead of Jesus. It also is idolatry because it makes us focus on fulfilling our own desires rather than on pleasing God. And either way, it's the same principle. It's a desire that is the focus of my devotion or fulfilling my desires is the focus of my devotion. Either way, that is idolatry. And it flows out of a deceitful and a desperately wicked heart. Wickedness. The word wickedness seems to focus mostly on doing harmful things to others or corrupting them, which is interesting. Right, so it's malice and hatred that leads us to do harm to others, whether through physical violence, through our words, or through something else. But it also is to take someone that may be somewhat innocent and to lead them astray into the ways of sin, thus corrupting them morally or spiritually. That is wicked. Lewdness. It's a general word used to describe all kinds of depravity. It covers any sort of moral uncleanness. But more than that, it, it, it describes an attitude about this depravity. But a, a lewd person not only acts in sinful and depraved ways, but a lewd person is not ashamed. A lewd person may well be proud of their sin, proud of the depraved ways in which they live their lives. An evil eye. An evil eye is an eye that lusts for what it does not have. The idea seems to be that to covetousness and jealousy. The evil eye wants what it doesn't have. And it does not seem fond of those who have what it wants. So think of it this way. It's not only covetousness. I want that. But it has a, a form of jealousy that goes with it that others that have it, we think less of them. We begin to demean them in our mind. Well, they only do this or they're stupid or they're... And we begin to hate them because they have something that we won't. We look at them with an evil eye. Blasphemy. This is important. Because blasphemy here does not refer to blaspheming God nearly as much as it does about blaspheming man. Basically, it's slander. It is doing harm to another's reputation by spreading gossip or lies or rumors about them. And if I was a meddling preacher, which I'm not, but if I was... I would say sharing fake news about people of the other political party is blasphemy. If you don't know if it's true about them and you share it, my friend, that's a sin. 
And it's a sin that flows from an evil, deceitful, wicked heart. Pride. Pride is self-exaltation, conceit, or arrogance that causes us to consider ourselves better than others. Pride makes me look at someone and say that I am better than them because of my race, because of my nationality, because of my social standing, because of any number of other things. If I look at people and I look down upon them, that is pride that flows from a deceitful and a desperately wicked heart. And then there's foolishness. And one of the ideas of foolishness that I thought most interesting was thoughtlessness. The foolish person does things without thinking first. Someone who speaks without thinking is foolish. Someone who acts without thinking is foolish. Someone who doesn't think about the consequences of their actions is foolish. A person who is thoughtless regarding their morals, their duties, and their behavior is foolish. And foolishness flows from a deceitful and a desperately wicked heart. That's quite a list of sins that Jesus gives, isn't it? And if we were just honest, few can read it without feeling stung on a few points. But would it surprise you if I said that that list of sins, as terrible as they are, they're not the real problem? I mean, would it surprise you if I said that even if you'd committed every sin on this list before church this morning, that was not the main problem? Because it's not. Usually, we focus on the sin itself. We're told what the sin is and we're told to stop it. Or we, we study it, we learn what it is, and then we vow to stop it. And yet, let's be honest. This does not fix the problem. It doesn't fix the problem because the sin, whatever the sin is, is not the problem. And that's the point that Jesus is making. Right? These things, the problem is that these things, they flow out of the heart. They come from within. Sins, no matter what sin we're talking about, are never the main problem. They're always symptoms of a much bigger problem. The problem, the real problem, is that these sins flow out of our hearts. These sins reveal that in some ways, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And when we focus on the actions of sin while failing to deal with the cause of sin, we fail to do anything to make ourselves better, to fix what's really going on. It's like the pain you feel if you have a broken leg. Now, the pain is a problem, but it's not the main problem. The pain is a symptom of the real problem. The real problem is that the leg is broken. Imagine taking pain meds, but ignoring the break in the leg. Taking enough meds so that it numbed the pain, but continuing to walk on it. 
Not only would this not fix the problem, but over time it would make matters worse. And that's the same thing that happens when we focus on the actions of sin, but ignore the problem. It may temporarily numb the pain. Because after, I mean, anyone for a little period of time can, can knuckle under the sin of their life. And so we knuckle it under and we feel pretty good. Look at what all I'm doing. Man, this is great. I'm getting it down. I'm moving on. I'm making progress. But we haven't dealt with the problem and pretty soon the pain meds wear off. The pain comes back and we realize the problem is much worse. At some point in all of our lives, we have got to stop dealing with the symptoms and take care of the problem. And the problem is the heart. So how do we fix our heart? That's where it gets complicated because we can't. You and I, we are unable to change our hearts. Now, we can impose restrictions and rules in an effort to change. And these may look good to people who see us. but They don't bring any real change in our lives. Because the truth is, change doesn't start on the outside and work its way in. Change starts on the inside and then works its way out. And that requires God. But thankfully, God is up for the task. God says that I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. God promises that he can do what no one else can do. He can take out one heart and he can replace it with another. God can do a heart transplant in our lives. He will turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. A heart of stone pictures a heart that is hard and rebellious, stubborn, particularly toward the things of God. A heart of flesh pictures a heart that is tender and responsive to the things of God. See, God doesn't merely deal with the symptoms of our problems. He gets right to the heart of the matter, so to speak. He goes to the source and he changes your heart. For again, real change starts on the inside and works its way out. It never starts on the outside and works its way in. When you and I are doing the changing, we start with outward stuff and we hope, desperately hope at times. That what we're doing on the outside will make a change on the inside. But if we're honest, we know it never comes. It never happens. But when God does the changing, he starts on the inside and he knows that it will work its way out to the outside. When our hearts are right, our actions will follow. Now, part of the desire or part of the change that God brings is a change in desires. Notice that God says he'll put a new spirit within us as he does this. Now, the spirit here doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit that he puts within us at salvation. Rather, it refers to a new set of desires that rise from within us because our hearts have been changed. 
One of the main reasons our hearts are able to deceive us so easily. Well, it's that deep down we want to be deceived. Deep down in the places we don't want to talk about. We really don't want to live a life of devotion to Jesus. We really don't want to live a life of holiness unto the Lord. We really don't want to crucify the flesh and walk according to the Spirit. And don't get me wrong, we we want to go to heaven when we die. We want Jesus to help us when problems come into our lives. But we want to do kind of our own thing right here and right now. We're pretty content with our lives just the way they are. Typically, we can find somebody that we have better morals than. And we can find a Christian that's less inconsistent than we are. And we can find all of these reasons as to why we're actually okay. Despite the fact when we look at Scripture and we look at our lives, they're nowhere near the same. Our desires, we just really don't desire to live in the way that God would have us to live. Part of what God does when He takes one heart out and puts a new heart in as he changes the desires that we have. Let me close with a story that illustrates the power of changed desires. When I was in high school, in grade school and everything up to the end of high school, I didn't really want to do my homework. Any high school kids relate to that feeling? I didn't. I didn't care if I got good grades or not, honestly. My, my one overall goal was the minimum standard. Right? Whatever it took to pass, if I made a point above that, it was like I had won the Olympics. Right? My grades, they reflected the fact that I did not care and I did not try. Now, my parents, God bless their hearts, tried everything they could to motivate me to get good grades. They told me I would live in their basement for the rest of my life if I didn't get good grades. They told me that I would never amount to anything if I didn't get good grades. They grounded me from everything but breathing. They'd make, they, they bought a desk, an actual school desk, and set it first in my room. But then when they weren't looking, I wasn't in it. So they brought it to the living room. Facing the wall so there wasn't anything fun to look at because we had that wood paneling that was popular in the 70s and 80s. And they would make me sit there until my homework was completed. So I would come home and I would go sit in my desk until bedtime. There were many other cruel and inhumane things they did to help me during this time. But none of it helped. My grades never improved. I did graduate from high school. You'll be glad to know now that you've hired me for 15 years. But I did so with the lowest possible grade point average the state of Oklahoma allows you to have to graduate. My grades were so low that on graduation night, my family comes, family from the city comes, and my principal is walking up with diplomas. And unlike Guyman, we actually had the diplomas on the inside. Unless you didn't graduate, then they were empty. And I said, hey, Mr. Freeman, do I have one of those? 
And he said, everybody has one of those Roths. And I said, yeah, but does mine actually have a paper in it? And he said, you'll find out when you get up there. I was across the stage looking at it before I realized, before I was certain I had actually graduated high school. That would have been a bad night with all my family having come down to see me. But that's, that's how it was. I, I just didn't care. Now, many years later, I enrolled in college. And I went to college. And I made good grades in college. I made all A's, a couple of B's. I made two C's, but I'm very proud of those two C's. They were the two hardest classes I ever took in my life. I, I did all I could. In fact, one of the C's, I worked, I worked harder on that C than I did on any A I ever made. I worked hard in college. I, I went to class on time. I took copious amount of notes. I, I did my homework. I, I was always there. I stayed late. I arrived early. In fact, one night after church, this good looking girl comes up to me and she says, you want to go get a Coke after church? And I said, no, I have homework to do. And she says, you're just going to stare at your book all night. And I said, yep, I got a test tomorrow. So you're not ever going to take a break. You're just going to stare at your book all night. So that's right. i got homework to do. And this went on for like so long that I began to feel sorry for her. She was just like, please, can you? That's all you're going to. Finally, I said, no, Kelly. I've got homework to do. <laughs> but after a while, I relented. And I actually went out with her. That was a good decision, it turns out. My grades almost suffered from it, but not completely. Now, what made the difference from grade school and junior high and high school to college? What and I got any smarter? My brain wasn't working any better. The difference was a desire. High school and junior high and grade school, I, I didn't care. I had no desire to learn. I had no desire to do well. I had no no real concern for it at all. But in college, I wanted to learn. In college, I wanted to do well. And so because my desires changed, everything changed. What is the main difference between a fully devoted follower of Jesus and a nominal Christian? The fully devoted follower of Jesus desires to do the things that Jesus wants him to do. The fully devoted follower of Jesus wants to read their Bibles. The fully devoted follower of Jesus wants to come to church. The fully devoted follower of Jesus wants to pray. The fully devoted follower of Jesus wants to give generously. The fully devoted follower of Jesus wants to help others come to know Jesus Christ. The nominal Christian has no desire to do any of these things. But the nominal Christian knows that these things are taught in Scripture. And so they'll do just enough to keep from feeling guilty. Just enough to convince himself that he won't go to hell when he dies. But there's no desire. The minimum standard. It's all that's required. As long as they get a passing grade. That's all that matters. The change of desire comes with a change of heart. And that is something that only God can make.
When God changes our hearts, it changes our lives. So the key truth today is that God will change my heart, my desires, and my life. I chose the words intentionally. I didn't want to say God can. Because that could give the impression that He can, but He doesn't always. Because that's not right. God will. To every person who comes to God. Broken over their sin. Convicted. Knowing that their heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And they have reached the end of themselves to try to fix it. God will do a heart transplant. And that will change your heart. That will change your desires. And that will change your life. Where those changes do not exist, there is a problem. How is your heart this morning? Let's stand as musicians come forward.